Hello and welcome to the I Want to Know podcast. I am Josh Spector and I am your host. If you don't know who I am, I'm the creator of the For the Interested newsletter, which you can check out at fortheinterested.com. If you're new here, welcome. This podcast exists to help creative entrepreneurs get their questions answered. And here's how it works. Each episode, a different guest comes on. They ask me three questions. We spend about 10 minutes talking about each of them. And that's it. No fluff. Hopefully lots of actionable tips and strategies you and they can put to use. On today's episode, I'm going to talk a bunch about newsletters, email marketing, and other things that I've learned in the process of growing my business. If those kind of things interest you and you find what I say valuable, you should also check out my skill sessions at joshspector.com slash sessions. Those are a series of one-hour video presentations on things like how to grow your newsletter in five minutes a day, how to get clients, and how to define your niche. If you like my podcast, you will absolutely love my skill sessions. So again, I highly recommend you check them out, joshspector.com slash sessions. Okay, today my guest is Kieran Drew. Kieran is an ex-dentist turned creator who shares ideas on how to make an impact and income by writing online. You can find him on Twitter where he's built a huge audience of over 166,000 people or check out his weekly newsletter, Digital Freedom, for deep dives on creator business advice. Recently, he had a six-figure launch with his new product, High Impact Writing, and he's here today to try to work out what to do next as he scales his business. Although I would say it seems like he's doing pretty well on his own. So I I will be happy to share my advice for him, but I'll probably and will probably learn some stuff from him as well. With that in mind, hey, Kieran, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on there. I've been fumbling around in the dark, mate. So if it looks like I have a clue, I don't. Yeah, you're doing a little more than fumbling. I think I think there's a lot of people who would kill to be fumbling the way you're the way you're fumbling. You know, I forgot to ask you and forgot to mention in the intro. So how long, when did you make the switch? How long have you actually been doing this stuff? Sure. So I started writing about three years ago. Well, I say writing, mate. I didn't have a clue what to do. I just knew I, I hated my career. I began just exploring <laughs> curiosity and I, I started trying to learn stand up and I found writing through that. And first year was awful. So that was like 12 months. Didn't add maybe a thousand followers at the end. And then so it's probably about two years in total where I've been taking it seriously. And I probably quit my job about 18 months ago now. Wow. Yeah. So there you go. So the first piece of advice for anyone listening is if you want to become a creator, go become a dentist. This is how the journey goes. Become a dentist and then eventually transition. You know, it's a typical path. All right. Let's jump into your questions. What is the first thing that you want to know? I think one of the hardest parts about being a creator is sifting through the conflicting advice because everyone will tell you the right way to do things. And what I've realized is nobody is wrong. But there's so much stuff going on that I'm trying to work out what's right. And basically the big one in my eyes now, so the newsletters at 20K followers, I am on the fence between email marketing and the newsletter business model. And the newsletter business model is obviously getting more and more popular on in the creator circle. I also love the email marketing side. Like I think email copywriters mm-hmm. are brilliant. They should all be studied. And, and I'd love to hear your views because I can't really quite get a clear answer as to the difference, what you should be focusing on and Can you just combine both? No, it's a great question. And I think there's a lot of confusion about it for a lot of reasons. And I think one of the reasons is everybody's using these terms in different ways. So it's like what email marketing means to one person is a newsletter to somebody else. And it's really interesting because when you have conversations with people, it causes lots of confusion. So that's part of the issue, just sort of the terminology. The other part of the issue is to your point, 
And I love that you said like sort of nobody's wrong because it's very similar to one thing I say is there are infinite ways to succeed. And I think so often people and creators especially are like, they think they're looking for that one path when the reality is there are infinite paths. I think that's important too, because they go like, oh, I'm making a mistake. I have to do it this way. This is how Josh does it. This is how Karen does it. You know, you can do it your own way. You can succeed whichever route you want to go. You can lean into email marketing and succeed with that. You can lean into newsletters and succeed with that. You can certainly do both. So let me talk a little bit about sort of, in my mind, my definition of these terms, which I have found to be, I think to be helpful and help give people some clarity about it. So to me, email marketing is designed to extract value from an audience and a newsletter is designed to provide value to an audience. The irony is a newsletter is actually the most powerful form of email marketing. Again, not an either or, but I think that's the, when I'm using these terms as we talk about this, that's sort of what I have in mind. To me, a big differentiator is with a newsletter, the newsletter is the product. You might still sell other things through it. You might sell other products. You might sell your consulting. You might sell whatever. But in your own mind, the newsletter itself is the product, even if you're not doing sponsorship or advertising. There's all sorts of different business models. With email marketing, those emails are not the product. People are not signing up to get your emails. They're signing up for some other reason, and the emails are designed to get them to buy whatever, to promote whatever the product actually is. Another huge difference, a newsletter, for the most part, does not have an endpoint. Because it's the product, it's going on and on. You're sending it ideally at a regular consistency, regular frequency, whereas email marketing is the opposite, right? You're not emailing people every week necessarily. It's not going on forever. There's a sort of clear start and end point of what you're trying to do. Even if you're just sending sporadically, I'm only going to email people when I'm launching something. So maybe I'm going to send an email once a week for a month during this launch. Then they're not going to hear from me for a while. And I'm going to send emails again three months later when I have another launch or whatever. So understanding in your own mind, which of these approaches do I want to go down? What am I actually trying to do? If you think about email as a delivery mechanism, am I trying to use email to extract value from people? Am I trying to use email to provide value to people? Yeah. Okay, so that's sort of some general context. The biggest issue I see with this is I see lots of people who mix up the messaging. So they're actually doing email marketing, but they're promoting it as a newsletter. Yeah. So people are signing up expecting a newsletter and then they're getting email marketing messages and it goes sideways or the opposite, right? This is one of the reasons I'm not a huge fan of lead magnets in general. They sign up because they want the lead magnet and right, they sign up because they want the lead magnet and then you're sending them a newsletter every week for the next three years. And they're like, what's this? I just wanted to get the guy's templates. So I think that's the either way can succeed. But the biggest problem is your messaging and what you're doing to get people on that list to begin with needs to be aligned with what you're doing. Don't bait and switch people. So I basically built my whole list on lead magnets, not templates and stuff. They're all it's like six high value courses for free. But mm -hmm. in my intro email, I do set the tone where I'm like, look, get this course, et cetera. I will be emailing every Friday. I have a newsletter. And if you don't want that newsletter, then you're welcome to go. And yes, as you can imagine, my churn is a little bit higher. But do you think that's, I don't really stop. I think it's okay as long as you're being clear. And I'd be curious to ask you how many people opt out. Do a lot of people opt out and go, I just wanted this mini course. I don't want the thing. It doesn't really look like it too much, man. <laughs> I've been trying to analyze it. I think because yeah. I'm obviously posting a lot on Twitter and these courses are fucking <laughs> every single day. They see it. They don't quite take it straight away, but they're like, this must be good because it's everywhere. 
But in the back of my mind, I have also there going, is it time just to have that landing page, sign up for digital freedom, you know, yeah. get X, Y, Z? Yeah. So I think, again, I think either is fine. And if it's, you know, look, lead magnet, I'm not saying lead magnets don't work. Lead yeah. magnets can absolutely work and get you people to subscribe. And what you're doing is right up front, once they subscribe, you're saying to them, you're being transparent. Yeah. So you're saying to them, hey, here's, you know, just so you know, here's what it's going to be. And it's easy for them to unsubscribe if they don't want it, whatever. So you're just giving the message sort of after the lead mat, which is totally fine. By the way, so I do, there's a version of that that I do where I have these free eBooks that at the end of the year, I call the secrets of successful creators. All it is, is basically a compilation of all my news, everything I've shared in my newsletter over the course of the year organized by topic. People can get it for free. And when they do, I say, hey, here's this free ebook. You're also now going to start getting my newsletter. And if you don't want it, you can opt out. Yeah. But where I think that works is there, the again, the alignment between my guess is the course, email course or the lead magnet that you're using is pretty aligned with what you're sharing in your newsletter. So the majority of those people are probably like, yeah, I want more of that. Where it becomes a problem is you'll see people come up with a lead magnet that's very compelling, but has nothing to do with what their newsletter is about. That sort of disconnect is more of a problem. The other thing I would say is, again, while I definitely lean on the newsletter side, it doesn't mean I don't ever send email marketing messages. For example, when I'm, I do it rarely, but I will occasionally, if I'm launching a product or, you know, have something that will be more of a sales message than my typical newsletter. But what I actually think is the sort of ideal scenario is email marketing within a newsletter. And what I mean by that is I don't send many sales emails, but for example, with my skill sessions, I recently did what I called skill session week. And it was a big promotion leading into the price was going to go up at the end of the week. And it was, you know, to get memberships. So every day my newsletter, was talking about that, but they weren't pure sales emails. I was sharing excerpts in each email. It was about people buying, but at, regardless of if they bought or not, every day they were getting value. They were getting these sort of excerpts from the course. Yeah. So that to me is the ultimate sort of hybrid of sales and newsletter. So it felt like I'm just sending my newsletter because every day I send people you know, tips to grow their audience and business. So that's what it was. But it was all themed and it was all, you know, every email mentioned, hey, this is an excerpt from a skill session. You can get them here. The price is going up on Monday. So I found that hybrid approach, which, by the way, if you only do email marketing and don't do a newsletter, you can't really do. You know, you can still write emails like that, but it feels email marketing. That hybrid approach has worked really well for me. And by the way, I think it's a good way to sell in general. Like sometimes you'll see these people where it's like, their email marketing is just sales email after sales email. And I think you're better off give people excerpts, give people actual valuable stuff from the product within yeah. each of those sales emails. The rule that I've tried to navigate both ways is before I sell, I have to teach or before I teach, I have to tell a story. And I mean, that's kind of helped. Mm. So you get value yep. even if you're not buying. So I, yeah. I'm hoping that it works out well, but it's like, I, I can't really tell if this is right or wrong. So that's pretty yeah. useful to hear, man. Well, and I think also you'll, like with everything, every audience is different. Every product is different. And as you experiment, you'll find, oh, this really resonates. I've experimented with all sorts of different stuff. And sometimes it's like, oh, that didn't really, maybe people like that, but it didn't lead to sales or vice versa. It led to some sales, but a lot of people are like, why are you sending me this? So you sort of find what fits for you. The last thing, just really quickly to answer this question, I thought that 
it'd be helpful for me to give three keys to success for email marketing and then three keys to success for a newsletter. Just things to plant in the back of your head, whichever way you're going to go. Here are my three keys to successful email marketing. Number one, get to the point. People tend to spend way too much time warming people up. I had a conversation with someone recently who literally had a 20 email sequence and they didn't push their product or promote it till the 20th email. And I think it comes out of insecurity, but it's so easy for them to go. I just want to give them value. If you're doing email marketing, remember the whole point is you're trying to extract value from the audience. So get to it. Nobody needs 20 emails. And if you're going to do a bunch of emails, don't wait till the fifth email to mention what you actually are trying to sell. On my writing checklist, I have, are you clearing your throat? Because as I said, that's so funny. You're just spending 250 words getting on with it, but Absolutely. The second key to email marketing success, get the right people on your list. We talked about this a bit before. Your lead magnet or however you're attracting people needs to be specific enough to get the people who are actually going to want what you have to sell. I think it's sometimes people, it's very easy to go, I just want to get as many people as possible on the list. And that's actually fool's gold. Like you need to get the right people. The more specific you are in sort of what you're doing to attract them, the more likely and the higher percentage of those people are going to convert. And so sometimes people will think, oh, my offer didn't really work, but maybe it's not the offer. Maybe you attracted the wrong people. So that can be really misleading. And then the third key to email marketing success, have a fallback for non-buyers. Don't make it all or nothing. So if people go through your sequence and maybe you don't have an ongoing newsletter, again, I'm talking just sort of email marketing here. But if people aren't ready to buy or don't buy, there should be something that they can continue that journey or that relationship. Oh, by the way, I have this podcast or here are a bunch of blog posts I wrote that you might want to read. Don't just sort of end it with, okay, this is your last chance. You're going to, you're going to buy or what? And they say no. And then you're done. Like you, they're on that journey. They just might not be ready yet. So you always want to go into it with what is the fallback? And maybe it's an alternate product. Maybe they don't want to buy the course, but they want to book a coaching call with you. Maybe they want to, you know, something. You don't need a million things, but something that can you know, nudge them further along the road. So that's email marketing. So now just three quick keys to success with newsletters. First one is it's really important to remember that the newsletter is not about you. It's about your audience. So even if you're telling personal stories, Even if you're sharing personal experience or your own expertise, the newsletter should always be focused on what other people are. It's not a diary. It's a newsletter. It should always be focused on helping them accomplish whatever goal or transformation they want. And keeping in mind that there's a reason you've chosen to create an ongoing newsletter and not just do email marketing. You've chosen that because, again, the newsletter is the product, even if it's not directly monetized, but that newsletter is designed to provide value to them. So it's not just you talking about whatever you want to talk about. The second key to newsletter success, you need to be consistent and you want to ultimately become a habit for readers. You can't become a habit if no one knows when to expect to hear from you. So one of my favorite little gimmicks here to test if you're becoming a habit for readers is ideally you're sending your newsletter at the same time every week or however often you're sending it. Once in a while, don't send it or send it late and see if anyone emails. So I I stumbled into this accidentally. So I always send my weekly email for years on Sunday mornings at six o'clock in the morning, Los Angeles time. And something happened one week and I screwed up like the scheduling of it. 
And so it wasn't scheduled to go till 6 p.m. instead of 6 a.m. But I woke up to a bunch of emails from people going, I didn't get the newsletter today. And, and what was fascinating was I had people saying, so not only did they realize they were missing it, which made me realize it was a habit for them to get it Sunday morning, but I had people saying, oh, I usually on Sunday morning have my coffee and they had tied it into their routines. And again, you're not going to get a million people going, where's the newsletter? But if you skip one or delay one, it's really interesting to see, does anyone notice? And if even a couple people say, oh, I think I missed the newsletter or whatever, you know that minority represents a lot more people that you've become a, a habit for. So that's a cool little test. And then the third key to newsletter success, one of the big advantages of a newsletter compared to email marketing is you get to leverage the data you get from the newsletter. You are able to see on an ongoing basis, what links do people click? What subject lines do they open? And then you're able to use that to not only improve your messaging, not just for the newsletter, but also for products you sell. You might be able to say, when I share a link about imposter syndrome, it gets way more clicks than when I share a link about a lack of confidence. And now you're building some product and you're figuring out your messaging and you're going, the phrase imposter syndrome, I know resonates with my audience more than lack of confidence, right? So that data, especially link click data, is super powerful in understanding and influencing your copy and also understanding what your audience wants and what, you know, not by based on what they tell you, but what their actions are actually doing. The other thing is obviously you can tailor messages by creating segments and, you know, sending specific messaging to those people. So for example, a while ago, I ran a cohort called Inbox to Invoice that was teaching people how to use newsletters to get clients. So I was able to, you know, promote it in my newsletter like I always do to everyone. But I also had written a blog post about how to use newsletters to get clients. So I was able to see who clicked that. If you're not interested in the free blog post, you're probably not going to be interested in joining the cohort. So when I wanted to amp up the sort of email marketing and sales messages, I didn't have to send it to everybody. I could send more sales messages and more promotional messages to the people that I knew were interested in it because they had clicked that link. That's something that you can sort of do with email marketing, but not in the same way. It's one of the big advantages of a newsletter, but I think it's one a lot of people overlook because they don't, they're just looking at, oh, look at my open rates and click rates. And if you zoom in on specific links and like what that tells you about people, it's a great way to surface potential buyers. That all makes sense. Any questions about that? Uh, brilliant, man. I think I'd be a bit scared skipping my newsletter in case nobody does email in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Cool. So let's get to your next question. What's the next thing you want to know? Yeah. I was saying before we start recording, like I've watched pretty much every episode of this. And I think one thing I would love to hear, man, is just like, what's like the biggest regrets for you building your business? Because you're a fair few steps ahead. And I'm a big fan of learning from other people's experiences than going through it myself. So I'll say, you know, it's interesting. This is an interesting question because I'm not the kind of person that has a ton of regrets in general. I understand, as I'm sure you have found as well, like, especially with what we do, this is a process. And so it's like, you have to go, not everything works. Lots of stuff doesn't work. And there's lots of stuff in hindsight that I'm like, oh, I would do that differently. I would whatever. But I don't know that I would go so far as to say, oh, I regret that because I think I needed that to be able to sort of figure out where I'm going. Just sort of keep that in mind as I'm talking about these things. It's not that I'm like, oh, that was a colossal mistake. And don't ever do that. I do think some of this stuff is inevitable. And again, 
Because also in what we're doing, you know, it's not like being a lawyer, right? Where there are some like universal, like what each of us are doing are very unique. Unique both to us as individual creators and to our audience and the people that we're attracting and what we're trying to do. So they're not universal rules, but what is universal, again, is that sort of trial and error and figuring it out. So with that in mind, I mean, there are definitely some things that when I look back on, I go, okay, if I was starting over now, knowing what I know now, I would do it differently. And so here's some of those things. So the first one is my first blog, I think, was in 1999. I've been at this for a really long time. And I had regular jobs all that time. And, you know, I didn't go full-time sort of creative entrepreneur until 2016. So I had a long time of sort of doing this on the side and whatever. And it was very start and stop. So I'd start a blog. I'd do it for a few months. Then I'd be like, eh, I don't want to do that one. I'd start a different one. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to be in this niche. I'm going to be in that niche. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And again, I think it's a necessary part of the process that everybody goes through. But in retrospect, I do think about, wow, if I had just sort of stuck with one thing, even if the niche and the topic evolved, but if I had stuck with sort of one blog from the year 2000 to now, as opposed to the year or one newsletter or one email list or one of these things, instead of, you know, where would I be? Easier said than done. And I don't think it's realistic to do that, but that's certainly something that like I'm aware of that constant sort of stop, start and shift around and I'm this and I'm that and I'm doing this and you know, whatever. Certainly does not speed up any of the progress. The next thing I would say is once I was full-time doing this, I definitely initially tried to use too many social platforms and juggle too many sort of brands and newsletters. So my For the Interested newsletter, when I launched it, just prior to launching it, I was running three different newsletters. One called Connected Comedy that was about helping comedians basically use social media. One called The Person You Should Know, which was a series of profiles of other people. And then one tied to my personal site, joshspector.com, which was like blog posts and whatever. Each of them had a few thousand subscribers on the email list and traffic to the website and whatever. So they were all sort of working, but it was too much. And actually, I started For the Interested as a way to be like, you know what? Can I create something that I can just fold all these things into? It was purposefully at the time sort of broad. I've since narrowed my niche, but that was it initially, right? So that was, again, definitely sort of doing too much and scattered as opposed to one sort of focused place for people to, to follow me and subscribe to me and get what I was doing. And that extended to social media platforms. So initially, like most people, I was using Facebook and I was using Instagram and I was using Twitter and I was using LinkedIn. And when things really took off for me, for example, on Twitter, which is my main platform, is when I literally stopped using all the others and said, I'm just going to focus on Twitter. And now it's one of the pieces of advice I give people all the time, especially when they're starting out. I think it is a huge mistake to try to be everywhere. It's really hard and takes a lot of time to grow on these platforms. And you will grow much faster if you just focus on one of them. And you can always expand later. And it's actually much easier to, once you've built a big following on one, it's a lot easier to go, all right, come connect with me over there. So using too many social platforms, definitely a quote unquote regret. Another one, I had built my free newsletter and it was going well. And then you start looking at like, how do I want to monetize this? And newsletters started taking off and everyone's, I'll create it, you know, the whole Substack thing. We'll create it. And I didn't use Substack, but we'll create a paid subscription. 
I tried multiple versions of a paid subscription to my newsletter. So like you'd get extra content, you'd whatever, or extra issues. In retrospect, I think that's a big mistake. I don't think it's the best way to monetize. And I also think that if you're going to do, I like paid subscription products. I don't like paid versions or extra versions of your newsletter because I think people don't want more. They want different. And so ultimately, that's where I wound up with what has been my most successful paid subscription product, which is the skill sessions, because they're complementary to what I share in the newsletter, but they're different. When you try to do a paid version of your newsletter, which again is extra content or extra issues, whatever, number one, I don't think people want it. Even if they love your newsletter, they're like, I don't need an extra two issues a day of more of the same or two issues a week, like of the same thing. The other thing is, I think it's really hard for the creator because now you're like, how do I know what I put in the paid version and what I put in the free version? Really complicated because you're like, oh, I have this really good thing. So I want to reward my paid members, but then nobody's going to see it and it can't spread and it can't bring in new people. So I just, I'm not a fan of that. And I sort of learned that the hard way by doing that. And by the way, we'll put a link in the show notes. I wrote a blog post all about that idea of the mistake that most people make with paid subscriptions. Another one related to the newsletter. I definitely waited too long to sell ads in my newsletter. I, for a long time, I, again, my newsletter launched in like 2016. I don't think I sold ads in it till 2020 or 2021. I was very anti-ads. I thought they were bad for readers. I thought they were just annoying. I've talked about this in a previous episode, but what led me to actually do it was I had a reader who reached out to me and she said she was a therapist who specializes in helping creative people. And she said she had run an ad in someone else's newsletter and it got her a bunch of clients. She said this was like the best promotion she's ever done. And did I know anyone else that had newsletters that offered ads like that? And it was weird because I was like, my newsletter was a perfect fit for her, but I didn't sell ads. And for the first time I realized, well, I'm not selling ads because I have this thought in my mind that it's somehow bad for the audience, but she's in my audience and it would be helpful for her to get clients. And my audience is creative people, a lot of whom would probably love to have her as a therapist. So it's actually good for my, maybe it's good for my audience and maybe I'm completely wrong. So I surveyed my audience and I asked them, you know, if I'm thinking about starting to run classified ads or whatever I call them. Would you want to see them? Would you potentially want to buy one or you hate ads and don't do it? 90% of the people that replied said they'd either want to see them or potentially buy one. So I was completely wrong. Only 10% of my audience was like no ads. Kind of question for that then, because it's been on my mind a bit too. By having ads there, are you taking a business away from yourself? You know, if someone has some money to spend and they go, you know what, I've got this ad, I'll click on this, I'll go spend it there. When they could have bought your skill set, just. I don't think so, because I think, and this gets into sort of products. If people are buying my skill sessions, they're not the only way, place you can learn how to grow your newsletter. They're buying them because they want to learn from me. That's the, you know, so to me, my products are, and to be honest, it's funny that you asked that because it's never even crossed my mind. Because I think the stuff that I sell is even like a consulting call, right? Like they're doing that because they want to talk to me. You can yeah. get a lot, there's co coaches and consultants all over the place, right? So I don't view, that's never something that I worry about. And what I've come to realize is the ads actually, it's another, besides becoming a really good monetization vehicle for me, 
they they actually provide a service to my audience because it's a way for them to reach people that they want to reach that can be difficult in other way, you know, elsewhere. So yeah, they've worked really well. And again, in retrospect, I was completely wrong and definitely would have started offering them earlier. The other thing, and this is sort of a broad thing, but again, which again, I think you learn as you go. I said yes too much to too many things. Clients, especially in the beginning, you take on clients. I would have some clients, for example, that I ran Facebook ads for. I could run Facebook ads. I didn't really want to do it necessarily. But in the beginning, you're like, oh, this is an opportunity and it's a client and whatever. But I think you learn as time goes on, both to clients and to projects and even to myself. I'd have an idea for something and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go start and build that. Now I'm much more deliberate about, am I really going to do that? If I do that, if I take on something new, what am I not going to do? Otherwise, you just completely burn out and all of that. And then the last thing I would say which is something that I still do not do nearly as much as I should. I would have invested a lot more time and effort in building relationships with other creator types. Like even this conversation that we're having now, like we've interacted on Twitter and stuff, we've emailed back and forth, but we will have a closer relationship now after having this conversation than we did before. Every time, even if it's just reaching out to someone and being like, hey, let's hop on a 20 minute Zoom just to say hi, get to know each other, whatever. Every time that stuff has led to really great things. And unfortunately, I just don't reach out as much as I should. It's a really good, every time I do it, I'm like, this is a great use of my time. Honestly, like more often than not, it's someone reaching out to me. And then I'm like, why didn't I do that? But that, that, that relationship piece I think it's a huge differentiator. And it's funny to hear you say, yeah, the same, because I think every creator that is building an audience and is successful to a certain level, everyone on the outside does not realize the role that relationships are playing in their success, both formally and informally, cross promotions, all that kind of stuff. It is so important and so overlooked. And again, I still, I bet, like it's probably an experiment I should do at some point, but I bet if I literally took a month and was like, every day I'm going to have a 20 minute conversation with somebody. It would probably massively grow my audience business, et cetera. And I'm guessing like you're nodding your head. I'm guessing you've seen the same thing or feel the same. Yeah, precisely, man. Like I, I really neglected the networking side. I think your podcast must be a brilliant forcing function for it, but I've tried to like systemize the reaching out process <laughs> because I know if I don't set a cadence around it, I'm not going to do it. But I do tell people like you need to get a little tribe, particularly if you're early in the social media stuff, very tough to try to do that alone. Yeah. And I think also along those lines, like understanding a couple of things. Number one is like people that have big audiences, you'd be surprised how many of them will actually talk to you. So I think people get intimidated and go, that person would never, you see that with cross promotions too, right? They go, oh, that person would never do a cross promotion with me. They have a huge bigger audience. People are way more likely to say yes than you realize. But even if you do it with other people that are just starting out or people that are beneath you, like everyone's growing. So it's like that relationship with someone now who maybe is just starting out a year from now, who knows where they're going to be? You know, I remember when I first, Justin Welsh and I like hopped on a Zoom and got to know each other and he had already been doing stuff on LinkedIn, but he was like just starting out on Twitter. I think I had twice as many followers as him on Twitter. Well, needless to say, that is no longer the case. My feed is now filled with other people telling me how Justin Welsh succeeded, which I said to him the other day. I was like, dude, I was like, that's how you know you've made it when it's like you don't even need other people are telling your stories and tactics all the time. 
But yeah, it's, you know, and it just using Justin as an example, it's not like Justin and I talk all the time, but having that just foundation of a relationship so that if I have a question for him, if there is something that like the ability to sort, you know, if I tag him, I know he's going to see it. Like just that basis. It's not like you have to talk to these people every day. It just makes a huge difference. I'm curious. So before we get to the next question, any, what regrets do you have so far? It's pretty much on a similar vein, mate. A big one is spreading too thin, trying to achieve everything and you achieve nothing and trying to grow yeah. everywhere and you grow nowhere. And so I say to everybody, you don't need more traffic, right? You need to serve one person yeah. with one offer until you build a business and then you can pour gasoline on the fire. It took me a year to get a thousand followers and that was what I was doing. Stop starting. It's okay now when it's like full time and you have the space to experiment, but when you're grinding at five in the morning before nine to five, you need that focus. Yeah. And also that focus also helps. It's so difficult for people. Everyone's so scattered and they're not paying attention. It's even understand like what you're about and what you're doing. If you're doing all these different things, like it's also hard for people to connect with you. It's much easier when they're like, oh, I, and again, it's one of the things that I think Justin has done brilliantly. Like his business is very simple. You know, I post, I talk about these things. I have these couple courses and that's pretty much it. It's very easy to understand. Whereas a lot of people are like, I do this and I do that and I do that and it's complicated. Cool. So let's get to your third question. What is the last thing you want to know? Sure. But this is something I don't really hear creators talk about enough and it's spending money. I don't know if maybe because creators generally go for the organic approach. And so like you could build with great margins, but. What I said to myself this year before the six-figure launch is that I would love to reinvest all my money for the mm -hmm. year to make stuff happen faster, better, better perception, whatever, really. Obviously, it's hard when you get six figures in four days, but what do you think I or creators like me should be spending money on? It's funny. I love that you said like you don't hear about them doing that. And I think some of that is that they don't do it, but I also think some of it is they don't talk about it. So you'll see, I notice this all the time, especially when people are talking about like revenue numbers or sales or whatever. And I've had conversations with people where it's like, they'll go, oh, I, you know, I had a whatever, $100,000 launch, but they fail to mention that they spent $80,000 on ad, on Facebook ads, right? It's like, okay, you know, okay. And I'm not, and by the way, like I'm not knocking it. But I think it skews, you don't see, to your point, you don't see a lot of people out there talking about, this is the money I'm spending to do this thing. You know, I, I had people over the past few months, I was investing in using Sparkloop to, to grow my newsletter. And so I had someone come to me and my newsletter over the span of a few months went from probably 25,000 subscribers to 40,000 subscribers. And someone came to me and was like, wow, congratulations. Like your email, like your newsletter's up to 40,000. Like it's really, they have no idea yeah. that I was doing that, right? They have no idea that I spent thousands of dollars to do that. Uh, so the results? I was, you know, it's interesting. So I just joined the ConvertKit creator network. So I paused the, I like Sparkloop a lot and I think it's really good. I paused my spending for the moment because I'm sort of recalibrating some stuff and also for for my own mind, I've increasingly gone to, okay, like my newsletter is pretty big. Do I want to spend that money investing in growing skill sessions, which actually like pay for itself? Like my focus now is more on converting my audience into paid skill session members. Yeah. That's my top priority as opposed to just like growing the free newsletter. That said, I probably will turn it back on at some point. I'm just sort of like taking a minute to sort of recalibrate and think about how I want to do stuff. Sparkly was on my mind, actually, because one thing 
maybe similar to what you said, but the opposite. I've built my entire audience organically, right? Threads mm-hmm. and tweets. And I was like, well, actually, what if you stop doing that and you can pay $2 per subscriber and you can then mm-hmm. invest time into selling your course? Is that the smart play? I mean, I definitely think, and I also think to me, like it's never an either or. So like, I'm a big believer in let's experiment a little and let's see what this looks like. And let's, especially once you have a product and you can run the numbers and get very difficult in our space to get sort of exact numbers of, you know, even for me when I go, okay, well, what's the free newsletter subscriber worth? Well, X percentage will get my skill sessions and X percentage will book a clarity call with me and I sell ads. It's very difficult to hone in on an exact number. But what I did when I was sort of thinking about it is I would be like, okay, let's say I spend $5,000 getting subscribers. And let's say I'm just, let's say I did it at $2.50 a subscriber, making this up. So I'm going to get 2,500 subscribers for $5,000. So then I go, okay, what do I need out of those 2,500 people to get my $5,000 back? Just hypothetically. I would need X amount to book consulting calls. I would need X amount to buy my skill sessions. Let's say, you know, it keeps the value of my ads or maybe makes the value of my ads a little bit higher, whatever. Here's what I need. And then I would sort of ask myself hypothetically, like how likely is it that out of those 2,500 new people, those things would happen? If in my own mind, that's sort of even close to break even, then it's probably worth doing because I got all those other subscribers. So that's a sort of not exactly scientific, but sort of unscientific ballpark way to go. You know, so like with you, with your course, you could go, okay, if I got 2,500 new subscribers, I theoretically X number of them are going to buy my course. It's going to cost me this. Is that worth it? And by the way, it might be worth it even if it's at a deficit. Obviously, ideally it's profitable. But even if it's at a deficit, right, let's say it costs you $5,000 to get 2,500 subscribers and you think that 2,500 subscribers is going to make you $4,000. So it's a net minus $1,000. But you might go in the grand scheme of things, I'm paying $1,000 to get 2,500 subscribers. That still might be worth it, right? I think that's the sort of calculation to make or at least how I think about it. I do think sort of jumping back to your question that... I absolutely think most creators do not financially invest enough in what they're doing. And I've got five specific things that I think are worth investing in for almost any creator at any level. So the first one is I definitely think paying to promote your content, especially in the beginning when you don't have a big audience, is absolutely worth it. I am amazed that people are willing to invest 100 hours writing their newsletter and won't spend $100 for people to see it. It's crazy. If you're creating things, you have already invested a significant amount of time and effort into doing it. And if you're starting out, especially you don't have a big audience, just because you only have 100 Twitter followers and you didn't get any action on your thread or your whatever, doesn't mean it's not good. It just means nobody saw it. So spending some money to promote the actual content is definitely a good investment, in my opinion. And also because you can target the exact people that are going to be interested in that. This is the other mistake. A lot of times you'll see people, they'll run an Instagram ad or they'll do whatever, and they're just doing this broad targeting. It's no, get super specific. If you have a blog post about what it's like to be a father of a newborn, you better only be targeting men. 
And on Facebook and stuff, you can actually target men who have kids that are between a certain age. You know, the whole thing that makes social media promotion ads valuable is the ability to hyper target. So I think a lot of times you'll see people where they're like, oh, I'll just boost this post to random general people. It's, eh, that's a mistake. The second thing is I think hiring logistical help on some level is a really good investment, especially if you're a solopreneur type. It doesn't have to be full-time. It doesn't have to be part-time, but there are certainly things that you are doing that are repetitive and basic and simple that you don't need to do. And hiring someone that can help you, this podcast would not exist if I didn't have someone who edits it and uploads it for me. I just wouldn't have time. Like a huge part of me getting to where I am has been all this time, you know, basically since 2016 or 2017, I have had help with logistical stuff, not doing a ton of stuff, not spending a ton of money, but little things that are really helpful. And so I think that's a really good use of money. That said, I'm not a huge believer in creative help. So I never paid, nor I would I pay for somebody to write social posts for me. Now, again, I view myself as a writer and creator, right? If you're not, maybe that's a different story. But in general, I think you don't want to pay people to do the things that you're supposed to be good at. So even with this, even with the podcast, I have someone edit it. I have someone edit clips. I have someone upload. I write the titles. I write the headlines. I pick the clips that I want. I just don't do the logistical work. So that, that I think is how I would approach that. The third one, and this is an investment as sort of different way of thinking about an investment, but charge more. Everybody undercharges for everything that they do. It's not an exactly an investment, but especially in the beginning, it may cost you sales. So it can feel like I'm costing myself money because I'm charging $100 for this instead of $10. But the truth is the price you charge has all sorts of impacts. Number one, you're going to wind up getting much better clients and customers. The more I have charged, the better the clients and the customers are. Number two, you establish a better brand for yourself because on some level, you know, pricing is branding. So if I make a course and go, oh, it's only $10, it might be the greatest thing ever, but people view it, assume it's a $10 course. So even early on, even if you're not selling many, setting a price you know, does also sort of establish your value in people's mind. And then the third part of that is if you're going to, do this long terms, it gives you a better chance of sustainability. You're not going to make $100,000 a year selling $10 courses. You're just not. And if you are, you're going to need a massive audience, which is going to take you a long time to build. So I think charging more is really, really important, even if in the short term, it costs you money. The fourth investment, I think I would say is books over courses. And yes, this is ironic. I know you have a course. I sell skill sessions, which is sort of course-like. I'm not saying there isn't value in courses, but I will say that most courses are not worth the money, especially if you look at, and I know this is ironic. I just told you to charge Except more and now I'm it. saying most, most, <laughs> most courses aren't worth the money. Most courses are also bloated. You know, you don't need five hours of videos and, you know, and even cohorts. I know that's like a whole other thing, but do you really need to meet every Wednesday for two months to figure out how to do this thing? So whereas most books, and again, these are generalities, but most books are worth way more than they cost. So I have bought courses. I buy books all the time. 
I would say that the things that I have actually learned and acted on and have influenced me more over the years, more often than not have come out of books than courses. Again, it's not an either or, but I think if you're investing, the fact that for $20 or whatever, you can get a book, which by the way, the book might not even be good, but there might be one paragraph in there that changes how you do everything. That's incredible return on investment versus a course where, you know, most people don't even finish the courses that they buy. Now that's not, again, not to say a great course is definitely worth money, but on in general, most courses aren't great. Like most things, by the way, most books aren't great either, but a book's costing you 20 bucks and the time it takes to start reading it and realize it's not good as opposed to a course that might be more. And then the last thing I would say in terms of investments is I believe that you should pay for social media strategy, but not for social media management. I think most people overpay for social media management and underpay for strategy. They think that I want to pay someone to, and this gets back into using multiple platforms versus one, right? They're like, I can't manage all these platforms. I got to go hire someone who's going to post on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter and do all this stuff for me. That number one, that posting is not hard. And you'll see people who even hire agencies to do it. It's not that hard. So even if you are going to pay someone to manage that stuff for you, you shouldn't pay a lot. What's really hard is coming up with a good strategy and figuring out what to post. That is hard. And if you're not the kind of person that is a creator or you're not sure sort of how to do this or you're insecure about it, having someone, not that you're paying every month forever to post five times a week or whatever, but that you're paying to come in and go, help me figure out a strategy for how I'm going to use this platform and what my content should be. That's really good. That is incredibly valuable. And I see this again, especially with a little less so with creators, but especially with like businesses and people that they run some business, they run some company or they're an entrepreneur, but they're not really a creator. And they're like, I need to use social media. And they go hire some agency and the agency is just like posting, you know, it's interesting. Like if you look at what a social media agency's pitch typically is, They're telling you all about like how often they're going to post and look at the pretty pictures. They spend very little time telling you about the strategy behind how they're going to help you figure out what to post. They're checking boxes so that they, at the end of the day and go, look, we post this and stuff's going up on all these channels, right? It's way more important to find someone that can really help you figure out what the content is going to be. And then in most cases, if they do that and you have that, You can, even if you don't want to do it yourself, you can have an assistant, you can have an intern, you don't need to pay someone a lot to take someone else's strategy and and implement it. So those are the investments that I think are worth making. I'm curious, what, what would you say is the best investment that you've made up to this point? Oh, that's a good question, man. Actually, I'm in your shoes here where like actually most courses I've taken are pretty disappointing. Saying that there have been a couple of pivotal ones, pivotal ones, you know, an example would be like Jack Butcher's build once or twice, because you can hear the right information at the right time. Even though, I mean, that was about 300 bucks. That course set my mind about, you know, building leverage and reputation and all that. So I think that that's probably been the most impactful investment. And also that's a good example. I took that one. I took that was been a few years since I took that one, but I think also like that's a pretty quick, short course, right? I don't remember that being, and you know, it's interesting, like I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, which is not necessarily true and may offend some people. But I think in most cases, courses that start talking about, we have 20 modules and 30 videos and 50 templates and all of that stuff. 
it's a tell that it's probably not that good. I think that, and it's one of the reasons why my skill sessions are literally like, they're an hour, it's a 40 minute presentation and 15, 20 minutes of Q and A, and that's it. And they're on a specific topic. Cause I think people forget, they don't take into account the investment of their time when they're buying a course and they go, oh, I'm just paying a hundred dollars or $300 or whatever it is. You know, I've had courses even that I liked that I'm like, I don't want to watch seven hours of video, get to the point. And you'll see, and I'm sure you see this too, where it's, let's say it's a course about Twitter growth or whatever. I don't need 40 minutes on what, why Twitter matters. Tell me what to do with my bio. Tell me how to get right to the actionable stuff. And I think people's intentions, a lot of course creators intentions is they want it to feel more valuable. So they're adding, it's fluff. They're like adding it out with all this other stuff. I heard you say this in another podcast and I found myself actually doing that for high impact writing. I was like, this is so obvious. But then when you're building something, you get stuck that trap, right? And I ended up actually rewriting the whole course by hand because mm. it was just the perfect way to be like, you can't be asked to write it out. So it's like, obviously isn't that important. And each lesson, like five minutes. And it was a great shout from like, hearing it from me because a lot of people said nice and punchy. And look, it's hard because it's all of our instincts. So even when I do these sessions, like I put together the presentation and I would say almost every time before I do it, I look at the presentation and I'm like, is this enough? You know, is this is 20 slides, whatever it is. I'm like, but then I do it. And the response you get from people is, oh my God, like there was no wasted time. You got right into it. And people love that, especially now because everybody's so busy and all of that. Kieran, speaking of your course, Thank you so much for coming on. These were great questions and I'm sure my audience is going to find them helpful and they will also find all your stuff helpful as well. So tell people where they can find you, where they can get your stuff, follow you, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Best place would be Twitter, which is at it's Kieran Drew. And then you'll find everything from there, but also KieranDrew.com to get on the email list and you'll find the product when you come join my little world. So cool. For me, again, my newsletter for theinterested.com. I'm on Twitter all the time at Jay Spector. If you want my skill sessions again, joshspector.com slash sessions. By the way, you can buy any of them individually or join as a member to get all of them. And if you'd like to come on this podcast and ask me three questions, go to joshspector.com slash questions. Kieran, thank you. Thanks everyone for listening, watching, et cetera. I appreciate it. And I will see you or you will hear me next week.